Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Without any further ado, I'll um, hand over to our first speaker, Associate Professor Ellie Buster. Ellie was a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre of Migration Policy and Society at the University of Oxford in 2003 to 2009, and she joined the Sociology Department at Macquarie in 2010. Her research, both in Australia and internationally, has focused on the situation of immigrants and the social and cultural practices which they develop through their interactions within increasingly diverse societies. Her current project looks at the affinities and differences that provide the basis for a local belonging in multi-ethnic neighbourhoods among Anglo Australians of Anglo-Celt, Chinese, Indian, Italian, Lebanese and Sudanese backgrounds. And the title of her chapter in the book is The Migrant Stranger at Home, Australian Shared Values and the National Imaginary. Well, thank you very much for your really lovely words, um, Justine. Um, it really was a pleasure to work with you too, but I'll come to that later. Um, basically, what I'm going to talk about today is just to give you a bit of a, a view from the editor's point of view in putting the book together and some of the main themes of the book. Um, you know, we were able to... Uh, assemble a fantastic group of researchers from our sociology department at Macquarie University, from other disciplines and from overseas. Among other things, this interdisciplinarity and internationalisation, or internationalism rather, helped us find an excellent publisher in Edward Elgar. One of the questions we're often asked about the book is, what is it that holds this book together? And this is a fair question put to edited books. Um, often, uh, you know, people wonder, well, what is the theme that runs through these books? When we first began to discuss the notion of home, we discussed meanings of home. And, you know, it can refer to the family home, uh, the meaning most commonly understood, and by extension it can symbolise a place of warmth and security, as well as a place of fear and exploitation. It can refer to locality in which people have close relationships with neighbours and have developed attachments to a neighbourhood square, for example. Political leaders often evoke the idea of the nation as the home for all who fulfil certain criteria of birthplace and culture. The persistence of home within this proliferation of life worlds, as Norbert Ebert, um, one of our colleagues, calls it, is the focus of this book. This collection investigates the social forces that surround home in the 21st century. We question the very possibility in the 21st century of any concept of a singular and self-sufficient notion of home. The changes to our understanding of home build on or deepen pre-existing contradictions. We question whether home can be placed at all or whether it is more accurate to understand a sense of home as something practised, a process 
rather than a stable thing, as Justine has discussed in previous articles of hers. By seeing home as a set of practices which configure our identities, both individual and collective, deep uh, contradictions and complex changes arise. Thus, the multi-level approach taken in this collection offers a new politics of home. This poses questions such as who can and cannot speak of home or in the name of home? Who has the power to define and regulate division or visions of home that exclude and deny others? Where are the visions of home that recognise rather than close off difference and diversity? Where is home practised and by whom? Without this reflexivity, definitions of home are not adequate in our times. The essays in this book question hegemonic visions of the family home and the homogenous national home and inquire into the meanings and effects of homemaking in contemporary society. One crucial thread that is opened up by the practice perspective and thus binds these contributions is agency, the, no the notion of agency. The chapters implicitly or explicitly are concerned with the construction of innovative and flexible notions of home. Many of the chapters expose everyday forms of agency which are demanded by these diverse practices of home. There is both local accommodation and resistance to power structures, including global conditions. And the chapters um, by Alund et al, Jufre and Redshaw uh, reflect that. A localised construction of home and belonging develops right there in the localities where people live and work. Adam Stebbing's work, my own chapter and Jeff Browett's reflect that idea as well. While this local accommodation and resistance appears to be happening offstage, um, a la Goffman, it also occurs right under the surveillance of the state, as Anderland and um, Justine Humphrey's work, Justine Lloyd and Yasmin Mushabash. Agency is not always about a reaction to or some form of struggle against a more powerful state or social group. There is also a constructive subjectivity occurring that includes the construction of home identities and belonging as a productive process embedded in multiple life worlds. And uh, Olivia Hamilton's work, Ilaria Vanni, Sean Sapsky and some of my chapter reflect that as well. There are five themes uh, that underpin this provocative framework on home. These are the unsettling notion of home, the stranger, home as dwelling, publicness and materialities and they're the five areas covered in, in the book. I've only got time today to provide a brief mention of a few of the chapters. Um, for example, Eve Honeywell uh, will, uh, brings into clear relief many of the invisible aspects of everyday life as she considers the home after industrial modernity. The question of neoliberal social policies' impact on home is opened up in several chapters. Alexandra Alund, Carl Ulrich Schirup and Lisa Kings address new ways of homemaking 
after the latest riots in Stockholm in, context of, in the context of several youth urban justice movements that are reclaiming welfare in their suburban areas, heavily hit by welfare cuts. Yasmin Mushabash provides fine-grained evidence of how punitive policies in the name of welfare, such as uh, the Northern Territory Emergency Response, uh, has disrupted Indigenous patterns of homemaking and relationships to country. Dayland and Humphrey outline a set of actors from the Occupy movement who converged on Sydney's central business district and the homemaking practices and inequalities that intertwine in space and time as a result. And Anne's going to be um, sorry, Justine's going to be talking a bit more about that today. Martina Giuffre. Uh, explores the homemaking practices of the migrating Cape Verdean women. She describes how established categories of gender are being rewritten in the transnational matrifocal home of Cape Verdean women. In the final section on materialities, we find reflections on the affective processes of homemaking, of feeling of home emerging through the senses, of homes symbolically defined through the material and sensory qualities of objects. While home is defined through material culture, in or material culture in or attitude to domestic labour, functional or convivial, in Shan Supsky's work, Olivia Hamilton's engagement with materiality defines the senses both as home and how the senses embody experiences of home in relation to the migrants' sense of home. While Ilaria Van is, is curious about how objects and everyday practices play a role in the uncoupling of the idea of home from the idea of place. And then there's Jeff Brewitt's work, uh, chapter in the book on man caves, which um, on, is uh, another of the very interesting chapters in that section. So while on the one hand there is a desire a nostalgia for the safety of the past. On the other hand, there is a lived reality of multiple life worlds. This is the ambivalence that we all inhabit and that this book interrogates. In conclusion, this collection offers a vision of the multiplicities of home by examining various practices, tensions and critical debates. The authors speak to the idea of home from within and across disciplines. Their work sets out to question home as a static, static entity and to provoke us to rethink belonging as a social process in which we are all implicated, but which can never be finalised or settled. So that's enough about the book. Um, I just very quickly would like to thank all the authors who um, partook of, uh, of the book and wrote chapters in the book. And more than anything, I'd like to thank Justine for the pleasure of working with you. It was a real pleasure working with you, working together, and just getting on with it. We just, the two of us just got on with it. We sort of made decisions. We'd email each other or have meetings and um, just got on, to it, on with it. And in that process, I learned about Justine's innovative work, her research, um, how she thinks outside the box and she was a great inspiration to me. So thanks, Justine. I really loved working with you. Thanks, Ellie.
The next speaker is Justine Humphrey, the lecturer in Digital Cultures at the Department of Media and Communications here at the University of Sydney. Her previous appointments include lecture in Cultural and Social Analysis at Western Sydney University and um, Research Fellow in Digital Media at the University of Sydney. And she's also been a great colleague at Macquarie as well. We taught together a couple of times and really enjoyed that. Um, Justine researches digital and mobile cultures with a focus on network publics, inequalities, digital infrastructures and transformations in work and everyday life. Um, and she's led research on homelessness and digital connectivity, which I think um, what she's going to talk to you about now comes out of um, and is related to the topic of her chapter in the book. So the title of her chapter in the book is Staying in Place, Meanings, Practices and the Regulation of Publicness in Sydney's Martin Place. Um, and she's going to thank tell us about it. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you very much, and it's a great honour to be able to celebrate the achievement of this publication uh, with some of the authors and the editors. My contribution to this book, as it's uh, been mentioned, is a chapter that I co-authored with my colleague, Anne Delander, and the project came about through my work on the meanings and practices of home and homelessness in urban mediated mobilities and Anne's long-term work in the homelessness sector. Now, in much of my research to date, I've been concerned with the uses and politics of digital media. I carried out research for ACAN on mobile phone and internet use with homeless uh, young people, families and adults, and also on digital connectivity for the Young and Well Cooperative Research Centre. So what is the value of uh, reconceptualising home with regard to homelessness and public space. I'd argue that efforts to address homelessness at a policy and program level have been hampered not only by insufficient and unstable funding to the sector and investment in new social housing, but also by a lack of engagement with the term home and its meanings. In this I agree with Adam Stebbings' point made in his contribution to the book that defining homelessness is a political act that influences policy choices and ultimately resource allocation. And as Ali has outlined, the idea of home in this book is that it is a social process. It's practiced. The home is a mutable, flexible idea rather than a singular and self-sufficient entity. And with this understanding, we can begin to address a host of new questions and challenges. Home has traditionally been understood in opposition to the public. Home is a site of entry to the public sphere. The mailbox symbolises the threshold of the external boundaries of the home, and it's an opening to the world. But other media, newspapers, television, radio, the telephone, all of these bring the outside into the home. Mobilities play a key role in reconfiguring the home and understandings of public and private, as do technologies that support mobile practices. We know that digital technology can extend and displace aspects of the home and our self-presentation into online spaces, a point also made by Evelyn Honeywell in her chapter on the post-industrial home in this volume. Homelessness draws attention to the socially constructed nature of these boundaries and the continued importance of the home as a material site of security and belonging. The number of people without a place to call home is growing. There are over 60,000 people 
on the waiting list for social housing in New South Wales, and less than 1% of rentals are affordable in Sydney. Young people and older women are the fastest growing homeless groups. Recent research suggests that one in seven young Australians are at risk of becoming homeless, and 60% of the total homeless population are under 35. Now, one of the consequences of Sydney's housing crisis is that homelessness is becoming increasingly visible in the form of highly public practices of homemaking, also known as rough sleeping, even though this represents only a fraction of the total homeless population. Homemaking practices in public are unsettling for a variety of reasons that run deeper than individual concern for the plight of the homeless. One of these is that these practices highlight the construction of the home in terms of privacy, such as the strength of this norm today that when practices associated with the home are placed outside, they are experienced as unsettling or unhomely. New South Wales State Premier Gladys Berejiklian reported uh, that the recently disbanded tent city at Martin Place made her completely uncomfortable. This reminds us of the power of normative understandings of home, but also the moral judgments invoked when these are upset. But homemaking in public exposes a larger systemic issue, the failure of a market economy to regulate demand and supply of affordable housing to all, and the impossibility of a privately owned home for many. The geographer Nicholas Blomley observes that to go beyond an exclusive focus on the workings of private property and to acknowledge the existence of counterposed property claims is an uncomfortable truth. Homemaking in public also reveals the unequal ways that people are governed in urban spaces. While some people sleep rough in city streets and parks, they are also denied access to these spaces. At the same time, Creative and mobile professionals are encouraged to spend time in the city and not to rush back to their inner city and suburban abodes. This was the starting point for our research. We were inspired to understand and expose these evident differences in the way that people's practices of dwelling are treated in public. So by studying practices of homemaking, of being at home in public, we sought to expose a variety of expressions of publicness as well as the uneven ways that publicness is defined and regulated. The usefulness of foregrounding home as a set of tactics of occupation is also to advocate for an expanded understanding of publicness, one that takes into account competing claims on the use of space. At the time of our study in late 2013, the so-called Martin Place tent city was nowhere to be seen. Though this pedestrian thoroughfare, dubbed the Civic Heart of Sydney, was to later become the site of a large encampment of people who were homeless, lasting over six months from last December to this August just past. Three years prior, Anne and I spent a number of days visiting Sydney's Martin Place, studying people's movements and dwellings. Doesn't sound much like work, does it? It was hot, and there was plenty of pre-Christmas and holiday activities going on at the time. But what we began to notice was the way that expressions of publicness contrasted with other versions that we'd personally experienced in the case of Anne's involvement in the Occupy movement and in my case, researching people's mobile phone and internet use when homeless. 
The first of these homemaking practices we focused on were those of mobile corporates. We observed the way that the space of Martin Place was given over to this group. Office workers going from place to place, shoppers on the hunt for goods and mobile phone conversations on the go. We noted the ways that cafes and other food and retail services, including charge bars, temporary seating and Wi-Fi hotspots, facilitated corporate territorialization while discouraging uses that involved long-term stays. At one point, we were ushered down into the Gringotts-like vaults of the Reserve Bank, having divulged our research status to, to a bank security guard, giving us a brief view into the secret inner sanctum of the corporate underworld. The second set of homemaking practices we focused on was the use of Martin Place by the Occupy Sydney movement, Oh, I've jumped ahead. Uh, in November 2011, we noted the alignment of the Occupy protesters with an agenda to redefine public space with others who lacked this ability, such as people experiencing homelessness. Protesters spent nights sleeping rough and helped set up with Lance Priestley the homeless and cold people's resource, providing food, clothing and blankets to the homeless. This was later reinstituted by Lance as Sydney's 24-7 street kitchen and safe space. We documented the ways that police interacted with protesters, removed structures and belongings and disbanded the resource. The third homemaking practice was the use of Martin Place by people experiencing homelessness. Whoops, I've, I've jumped. I haven't got that photo here, but that's okay. Uh, through law, we, here we highlighted the long history of the criminalization of homelessness through laws, practices, and hostile architectures in cities throughout the world, as well as those particular to Martin Place. We noted the absence of the homeless at the time, observing the shelterless and windy expanse of the pedestrian thoroughfare and some of the tactics used by the homeless uh, visitors at the time to superficially dwell in consumer spaces by blending in with office workers to access warmth and Wi-Fi what we found is that the public space of Martin Place gains its meanings through the privileging of consumption and the dominance of corporate models of occupation. At the same time, these models are challenged by the presence of the homeless and political agitators who question the extent to which public space is available and accessible to all citizens through tactics of staying in place. Now, the meanings of Martin Place are dynamically created and contested Soon after our chapter was submitted, the so-called Martin Place siege took place. This highly mediated event drew attention to the way that public spaces are implicated in a further set of boundary-making exercises that not only shore up normative notions of the home, but also of the nation-state. Another set of events took place post-2013. I don't think I'm ever going to finish this study, a further addendum to our account of homemaking in Martin Place. And some of these might seem, uh, appear familiar to some of you here. Around June in 2016, Lance Priestley, who'd run the People's Resource during Sydney's Occupy movement, set up a more permanent presence at Martin Place. He explained the need for the 24-7 street kitchen as a response to the rise in women who were homeless experiencing physical assaults while they slept. The site attracted 
dozens of homeless patrons and provided a platform for the sharing of many stories of homelessness to journalists and reporters by a group who are notoriously difficult to reach and represent. After months of dialogue and unsuccessful efforts by the City of Sydney to shift the campers away, Premier Berejiklian stepped in in August this year, stating that Sydney's Mayor Clover Moore should find a solution to remove the encampment. Days later, and in a deadlock with the City of New South Wales, the New South Wales Government hurriedly passed laws giving police new powers to forcibly move people from public places if they were deemed a public safety issue. Ultimately, the new move-on powers were not used by local police. The threat of being moved on was effective enough. The campers at Martin Place started to pack up and leave on Friday, August the 11th. Some of the traces of the Martin Place encampment, uh, however, live on. Lance Priestley worked with design and advertising agency Clemenger BBDO to create an interactive website that documents and recreates the tent city online. The site uses Google Maps to pinpoint the former sites of activity and you can click on individual um, people to hear their stories. There's a, an image of Lance Priestley that you can uh, click on and um, he, he talks about his experiences at Martin Place and also uh, being dubbed, his experience being dubbed the mayor of Martin Place. So what's happened since and where to from here? At the time of the disbanding of the tent site, Homelessness New South Wales and other services raised serious concerns that temporary or even permanent housing offered to campers without ongoing support is unsustainable and unrealistic. Their concerns have proven well-founded. Many of those who were offered temporary housing are now back on the street. Some of the campers relocated to other sites, like Belmore Park near Central Station. This camp was also pulled down by police at the end of August, but with less media attention. At the time, St Vincent de Paul warned that removing residents took them away from essential support services, like food van and outreach. Meanwhile, Lance Priestley has returned to Martin Place on Sunday nights to provide his kitchen services. These Sunday community days are well publicised on Facebook, profiling video interviews and other activities to support the homeless. Martin Place is a centre of struggle, a struggle over what publicness means and who gets to belong in it and how. While tents in public spaces are not the long-term answer to homelessness, Lance Priestley's 24-7 kitchen and the Martin Place encampment represent a significant intervention. Whether or not the homeless occupation of Martin Place accurately embodies the kind of radical political subjectivity of the multitudes as conceptualised by Hart and Negri, the tent city showed that space is implicated in and is still a necessary feature of protest as a complement to, a support for and as an alternative to immaterial networked spaces of struggle. The encampment made visible the failure by government and even the services who provide specialised assistance to deal with the causes of homelessness. And it was the visibility of this failure that made the tent city so uncomfortable for politicians and other pundits. It turned the normal spatial order of Martin Place on its head. Instead of the automatic control over public space granted to mobile corporates at the service of contemporary capitalism, 
the tent city turned Martin Place into a self-organised commons with its own mayor, made up of those denied access to the rights and entitlements of property. Perhaps most importantly, it gave people who were homeless something of what they needed in a time of crisis, a sense of home. Safety, communality, food, shelter, and a platform for their stories and demands. The popularity of the site confirmed a need for a visible and safe space where people can go to seek help and gain a sense of belonging in public. At the time of the Martin Place encampment, radio host Alan Jones made the statement to his listeners in objection to the tent city that Martin Place belongs to all of us. I'd have to disagree. Martin Place continues to belong to those whose claims are heard and enforced in the codes, designs and laws that govern public space. For others, Martin Place is public only when territorial claims are made, during temporary occupations, in the times between being asked to move on and in the traces preserved in networked virtual realms. Thank you. Thanks, Justine. Um, so our third speaker is Professor Heather Horst, who's right next to me. And um, Heather's a professor in the Department of Media and Communications at the University of Sydney and joined the department earlier this year. Prior to this, she was the, a professor in the School of Media and Communication and the co-founder of the Digital Ethnography Research Centre at RMIT University. Um, Heather's a social cultural anthropologist whose research focuses upon understanding how digital media, technology and other forms of material culture mediate relationships, communication, learning, mobility and our sense of being human. And I know Heather has um, done some really interesting research on homemaking in uh, particularly the Caribbean and particularly around um, practices around death and belonging and um, really interesting work. Um, so Heather's current research explores transformations in the telecommunications industry and the emergence of new mobile media practices across the Asia-Pacific region and Heather's going to respond to some of the themes of the book. Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, I just want to thank uh, Justine, Justine and, and Ellie for um, the invitation to speak today. It was great. Um, I mean, just, just an aside before I sort of uh, start reading, um, I did my PhD research on uh, Jamaican migrants' constructions of home through the material culture of the home <laughs> um, some years ago. And so it was just fantastic to sort of see this work kind of revived. And that's kind of, that's kind of where some of my comments tonight will kind of come from. Um, so I'll just start from there. Okay, so I think as we've been hearing, um, certainly from Ellie and uh, Justine, um, home is a contested concept. Home may be understood as a physical space, such as the structure of a house. It can represent a real or imagined territory, such as a country, as well as a sense of belonging, safety, or a sense of security. Home is often conceptualized as a series of relationships, such as family, and in many iterations, it becomes a space of memory and remembrance. Yet, and as feminist scholars have cogently argued, for others, the idea, space, or memory of home may be much more problematic. Home may represent a patriarchal space or one of haunted memories. It can symbolize a space of dissonance and exclusion in the name of race, ethnicity, gender, nationality, and other categories of difference. 
Moreover, for individuals living in house societies or in societies which value home ownership as a quintessential marker of worth or identity, the homeless lack the homeless's lack of, of space belonging, safety and security becomes problematic. So there is also a recognition of the relationship between movement and home. Andrew Dawson, for example, has analyzed a local museum and some of the debates over heritage and middle and working classes in, North, in a North England coal mining town, highlighting the ways in which home can be uh, fixed in a particular place due to social and or economic constraints. Movement, in contrast, may be more cognitive uh, than physical. Juan Wardle, um, who's worked in Jamaica, has also looked at the ways in which um, kind of ur poor urban Jamaicans uh, um, engage in cosmopolitanism through dreams and imaginaries and so on. Um, so Karen Falgolwig, in particular, has written, and this is, this is back to my Caribbean roots, <laughs> um, has written quite extensively about the contested nature of homes and has called attention to the middle-class values that are upheld in depicting home as a space of comfort. But rather than notions of comfort and a sense of belonging, Olwig has often argued that attention should be directed to the differences and relationships between the idea of home as a physical space and home as a series of social relations. As she elaborates, quote, it may be useful to distinguish between home as a locus involving specific relations of social and economic rights and obligations, and home as a more abstract entity that is primarily expressed through various types of narratives and other forms of symbolic interchange. These two aspects of home mutually reinforce and implicate one another so that home will not exist in the form of a concrete set of socio-economic rights and obligations if it does not receive some sort of recognition and validation through narratives and other kinds of symbolic expression among interacting individuals. Similarly, the social and economic practices of home have an important bearing on the kinds of narratives of home that will be related by the individuals involved." Unquote. So actually, it's been 20 years since Olwig actually penned those words. And I have to say that Justine Lloyd in Ellie Vasta's volume, Reimagining Home in the 21st Century, takes, effectively for me, takes up Olwig's call to encounter and understand the complexities of the notion of home. Attentive to the celebratory postmodern academic critiques and identity and deterioritization that dominated the kind of late 20th century scholarship, particularly on diasporas and home, but also migration, movement, and identity, and the broader issues of power that shaped the politics of recognition of different populations in Australia and other parts of the world, the contributors to the volume introduced quite fascinating and contemporary case studies that both center and decenter ideas about home. These range from analyses of domestic spaces such as kitchens and man caves and homemaking practices among Aboriginal Australians and women in the Cape Verde, uh, Cape Verde and diaspora to the emergence of mobile homes and work practices, the forced mobility of homelessness in public spaces and the broader notions of home and belonging in Australia's national imaginary. The analyses are also interdisciplinary in scope, bringing sociologists, anthropologists, cultural studies scholars, media scholars, and migration scholars into conversation. And through these different analytical lenses, each chapter represents a different vantage point through which to analyze practices of home. So as Lloyd and Vasta define their practice approach to home, home, home is conceived as a, of as a practice um, that becomes, quote, a process and an event that opens up for new, home for new kinds of analyses, unquote. 
this analytical shift takes the call for scholarship into the context of 21st century transformation. Um, and then I think actually takes it one step further than Olwig suggests by bringing together uh, issues of practice as well as power and policy at multiple scales, what one might conceptualize as a new politics of home. And this is particularly striking for me in the chapters that focus on the Australian context. And I'm going to talk about these just very briefly, but I think that given that we're at the sort of Sydney ideas sort of um, event, um, I'm really quite struck at how these uh, chapters actually um, have broader implications um, beyond the kind of academic text that's been kind of produced here. So for example, Ellie Vasta's chapter examines the ways that migrants in multicultural Australia navigate belonging and affinities of being both insiders and out outsiders. These hybrid practices and narratives often cut against national immigration policies that require Australian values tests for citizenship, for example, and the broader multicultural narratives of assimilation I think many of us are familiar with in kind of uh, popular discourse. Justine Lloyd's chapter at Home in, um, in Public draws our attention to the ways in which these broader discourses of belonging play out in public spaces uh, through everyday practices. And in particular, she highlights the state's abdication of responsibility for the kind of public witnessing of things like uh, race, et cetera, um, um, and insults, et cetera, on uh, public transport. Uh, Yasmin uh, Mushabars attends to the ways in which the Walpiri contend with the shifts in national policies related to the management and the kind of civilizing mission of Australia, Aboriginal Australians, from the formations of camps to housing in the era of self-determination to the contemporary moment of what she terms intense policy intervention. And finally, as we've heard from Justine, um, the kind of work in St. Uh, Sydney's Martin Place looks at the way in which corporate citizenship is effectively valued and consumer citizenship is effectively valued um, over other forms of occupying uh, public space, um, and in particular the ways in which other than corporate and consumer citizens are discouraged from actually staying in place. So as I was sort of stating at the outset, while this remains an academic book launch with all, and the, each chapter is really rich and has a really, um, you know, kind of deep theoretical engagement, both with contemporary kind of theory, but also, um, you know, historical engages with Simmel and uh, Goffman, et cetera, in a really rich ways. Um, and it really brings some depth in a, in a way that one would expect from the, all the kind of fantastic scholars who are in there. It also, I think has value and use outside of academia. Through engagement with policymakers and politicians, and I know, I know Justine's work the best, I know that she's actually kind of doing this work, um, one, uh, one would hope that all of the contributes in the chapters can, um, are able to kind of shape debates about the future of Australia and the future um, of kind of the, the importance of the kind of state in these kind of conversations. So I want to congratulate the authors on this accomplishment and support their efforts to reach out to others to put into practice their fantastic insights. So I'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Heather. Um, so our final speaker is Professor Greg Noble. Um, Greg is professor at the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. His current research examines the transformations in cultural participation and production in Australia over the last 20 years and the way conceptions of habit inform the techniques of mundane urban governance. 
He also has an ongoing interest in the Lebanese diaspora, currently researching migration and the ethnic habitus with Paul Tabar, and in multicultural education with uh, Megan Watkins. So we did give um, Greg a slightly different brief, which was to officially launch the book, um, and that's what Greg's going to do now. Kind of. Um, it's a joy to be able to do this, um, partly because I've known Ellie and uh, Justine for a very, very long time, so um, it's good to be part of this moment with them. Um, I am actually going to do two things. Um, I'm going to do the, the launching bit, the priestly duties of the launch, um, right at the end. Um, but uh, the, the prerogative of the, of the launcher is to ramble and rave and uh, tell personal anecdotes and, um, and then kind of suddenly kind of bring things back together. So my presentation is going to be neither as ordered or as prepared as the, um, the three that you've heard already. But um, where I'd like to start is that the most important thing about a book is that it makes you think and it provokes you to think differently and sometimes asks questions that you can't quite answer. And that is what this book um, has done for me and I hope it will do for you. It actually reminded me of a conversation I had with a British academic about 20-ish years ago. Uh, just as I was about to start doing some research on possessions in the home um, and I was telling him about it and his response was the home, that's been done and we started to kind of you know, cite three or four key publications of the past five or six years. It reminded me of the, you know, the, the boy in uh, first year at university, he says, why are we doing gender again? We did it in year 12 in, first semester, in uh, week 12 in first semester. Um, so home is one of those things that you actually have to keep revisiting. It actually never goes away. Um, it's, it's something that actually has to be re-examined in each generation, in each location, and in each context. And if you think about the world that we live in today, there are very good reasons why home is something that never quite gets resolved. And if you think about the kind of the public debates that we're having at the moment about um, movements of refugees around the world, around the anxieties that people have about migrants moving into their neighbourhoods, um, about the technological mediation of, uh, of privacy, about um, um, you know, the globalisation of real estate and the, 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 the turning of the home into not a lived experience but a source of capital. Um, uh, climate change even, um, same-sex marriage. A lot of the discussions around the, these things have at their heart a concern, sometimes explicit, sometimes explicit, implicit, about what it means to be at home. And even though those things aren't discussed in the book, um, they, um, I think they kind of you know, push forward some questions that um, I think are, are really significant for me. Um, and I think one of the, the crucial um, points that's been made, I think, already is, is the idea that there is no single unambiguous way of thinking about home. And the book is very clear about that. It's a necessarily a shifting and layered ensemble of practices of homemaking. Um, our, not just as an individual kind of task, but um, our relations with others, with other spaces and things, and with our affective and embodied states of becoming and being. And as the contributors to the book um, suggest, home is an interactional achievement. Okay? It's an achievement. It has to be keep being done over and over again. It's not something that, you've, once you've achieved it, it just, um, it's just sorted. And I said one of the things that a good book will do is make you to reflect, um, not just intellectually, but actually on your own life. And I want to tell you a brief story about my neighbour, Ray, um, uh, who kind of... Um, I started thinking about Ray as I was rereading this book. Uh, so this is the second time I've read it. I read it in manuscript form some time ago. Um, 
Ray's in his mid-70s. He's been my neighbour for 30 years until a couple of months ago when he moved out. Now, the, the first interesting thing about Ray is that until he moved out, he lived in the same house on the same street for his entire life. How many people he can say that they've lived in one home only? There you go, nobody. So he's weird in that regard, you know, in the modern sense. Kind of belongs to another generation, another world. But um, Ray was becoming increasingly anxious about the place he was living in, partly because we were one of those suburbs, like many others, that have been targeted for development. So um, Californian bungalows were being replaced by um, high-rise buildings down the end of the street. Um, new homes, um, new residences, I should say, were being built um, and uh, by the, uh, the, by the thousands um, over the months. It was also an area where that had been dramatically changed by massive influx of migrants from East Asia and South Asia over the last two decades. And so Ray's home, the place that he grew up, was not the same place that he grew up in. So even though he had stayed in the same place, his home was changing. Um, and that started to kind of unsettle him a bit. It coincided with the fact that his health started to deteriorate and the real reason they moved was largely because um, he was no longer capable um, of really looking after himself and his wife Jenny um, had to do a lot of the, the care. So they upped and moved to a, um, one of those places, one of those complexes designed for elderly people um, to live together um, in the twilight years. Um, and he moved, they moved to live um, very close to, in the same complex, their neighbours of 30-something years who had moved out a year ago. So there was this kind of weird thing where they're kind of losing the home that they'd been in, moving to a place and trying to um, rediscover a home with the neighbours that they were neighbourly with. The interesting thing about that, though, was over the years you could see the labour that Ray and Jenny had put into their home. Okay, so labour is really important here. We talk about homemaking practices, but it's very much a labour. Tending the garden, you know, working in the house, painting and so on and so forth. When they moved, like many people, they had to sell their objects. So several of the chapters in the book talk a lot about the objects that go to making a home a home. They had to sell them. So I remember the day when they had their lawn covered in things and Ray sat there on a chair on his balcony looking forlorn as um, the resources that he'd accumulated over many, many, many decades to make his life livable were being sold off. So he was moving to a place which was neighbourly, but it was also without the resources that it accumulated to make life bearable. So, but the, the sad thing is that about um, a month after he moved out, Ray turned up again, parked outside the front of his house. He dropped Jenny off at shopping and she said, come back and pick me up in an hour. Ray, in his, um, uh, his ageing years, got to be disorientated and turned up at home. I wasn't there. My neighbour went over and said, Ray, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm waiting for Jenny. He said, well, Jenny's not here. You don't live here anymore. Had to be, um, re he had to re-remember where he now lived. But the interesting thing is that his body took him back to the place that he'd lived for 75 years. So he had this kind of sense of disorientation, which required him to kind of go back and find the place that he felt most at home. I, I mentioned Ray. I mean, there are many reasons why I mentioned Ray, but um, it links with many of the themes that the, 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 the book talks about. Um, 
partly about the contexts in which homes are made. It's partly about the resources which people use to make themselves at home. It's partly about the practices that um, people engage in to make themselves at home. But it's also about the ambiguous nature of home itself, that home can be, as some of the papers suggest, framed by an experience of loss, not just a gain. It's not just a making in a positive sense. It's also possibly always an experience of loss, most clearly seen in the migrants um, in the Cape Verdean chapter who, um, who leave. And Ray had become strange um, in his own home, in a sense. And so the stranger is not simply the migrant who arrives from somewhere else. You can become strange yourself by staying put. So, um, now I'm not suggesting that I should give Ray the book and that will solve all these problems. Um, I'm sure he would enjoy it. No, he wouldn't actually. Um, but it, what was interesting was that it made me think about um, the concrete experiences of what it means to, to, um, to live in a place and then have to leave. Not just as an intellectual exercise, but a very pragmatic uh, um, experience of movement. So the book talks a lot about, um, and I think it has um, just um, pointed out again, that uh, home is not a singular place, it's, it's, um, or has a singular dimension. It has a kind of a physical, symbolic, an effective um, um, uh, and material dimension to it, as well as um, um, the usual things that we can think about as being at home. So one of the things I like about the book is that it emphasises the kind of the practices of homemaking. Now it's very easy to say that you can say it in a very glib way. Everybody says the practices are bloody blah, blah blah, but they mean it in very particular ways in each of the chapters and in ways that are um, in, in tension with each other, which makes it quite interesting. So we have, for example, the Cape Verdean um, chapter and the, um, the chapter on the car, which talks about how, while we think of home as being a place of stability, these um, show that um, making yourself at home can also be about movement. In fact, movement is about a homely experience. Similarly, the man cave that um, Ellie referred to. So we have a chapter in which the man withdraws from the sociality of the home into the man cave, um, to produce a sense of being at home. And in the following chapter, we have um, a discussion of the conviviality of the kitchen as a very, gender, as a very kind of, you know, gendered way of, um, uh, of uh, thinking about relations between people in place. Both are about being at home. Both are about intimacy and sociality, but quite different gendered um, strategies for doing it. So it's, it's having that very specific sense of particular kinds of practices in particular places done by particular kinds of people that I think are, um, is really interesting about the book. It connected for, for me with my own work because of the work I've been doing with Lebanese migrants where I've, I've been thinking about um, homemaking as a kind of a process of settling. Okay? In fact, it's a process of settling, unsettling and resettling to give you that kind of processual sense that the book is trying to capture. Um, and, and, and I think it's, it's really significant. I mean, there are, like Ellie, I have an interest in migrant, migrant Australians, um, and there are, I think, several of the chapters in the book talk about the experience of migration. But it's very hard, unless you've been through an experience of migration, to know what that entails in terms of your, um, not just your um, movement from the homeland, but as a kind of an embodied dislocation from the things that you know. So senses and smells, um, sights, light, colour, ways of doing things, sexual mores. All these things can change when you have to remake yourself and remake yourself in a new home and therefore remake your home. 
Um, for me, that raises the, um, kind of the, the question of pedagogy. Um, it's something that I've kind of been, become very interested in. The book doesn't talk about it so much, but it kind of points to it all the time. That um, homemaking is not just an, uh, an, an active um, um, task of making yourself at home. It's also a process of learning and relearning and sometimes unlearning. And if you have arrived from uh, a place where uh, things are done differently, it's a quite traumatic experience, whether it be learning the rules of the road or um, forms of uh, physical intimacy um, with people of the opposite and the same um, sex, uh, or even learning how to use a, a Western-style sit-upon toilet. These things are quite dramatic, and yet somebody has to kind of learn how to do it to make themselves at home. And the book you know, kind, of, kind of pushes towards these really deep questions about um, how that actually gets done. So, um, as I said, I want to finish with a couple of points. One is, that I said, you know, the most important thing about a book is that it makes you think and reflect and challenge the ways that you think about, um, about some of these questions. And this book does it. The second thing that I like, um, that I, uh, that I like about it is that in... in Focusing on the complexity of the questions at hand, it actually holds these things in tension. It says, um, home is ambiguous, it's contested, it's multiple, but to understand it, we have to hold these things together in tension. And the individual chapters do it, but the book as a whole does it as well. And it's almost like, and this is the third point, there's been a debate amongst the authors about these issues. They kind of fit really nicely together, um, both in the sense that they disagree with each other uh, and they also produce data and make claims which actually lead to a sustained, developed argument. So, it gives me um, enormous pleasure, as I said, to, to launch the book. Now, the usual metaphor for, the, um, for launching a book is the, uh, the ship, you know, bang with a glass bottle and off it sails into the sunset. That seems very inappropriate. So, for me, it's more like we have to lay, lay the foundation stone of a new building, a new home. And I think that uh, what we're doing today is laying that foundation for what will become a very, very successful infrastructure. So congratulations. Thank you very much to everyone um, for such great insights into the book, things I'm remembering now and relearning, which is really great. Um, but now we've got time for questions from the floor. So over to you. We have a couple of mics here. Um, but I can probably just repeat the questions, I think, um, for the podcast. Yes, so. <coughs> Sorry? Yeah, would you like the microphone? Thank you. That was a very interesting uh, discussion. Thank you very much. The, um, my point of curiosity, listening to all that is, Given the way technology is going, and given the way climate change and the impact it's going to have, we're already seeing that in the Caribbean, we're already seeing that in Florida, where the homes are just, entire locality is just, vanishes suddenly. Would concept of a home survive in 50 to 100 years' time? We're talking 21st century here. In 50 to 100 years' time, would there be a home? And it's in the context of climate change, it's in the context of Technology blurring lines between work and uh, home. And thirdly, blurring lines between what is physical and what is virtual. So you have, I've seen people sitting in coffee shops, 
staring into their smartphones and their whole social interaction is through the smartphone rather than the person physically sitting together. So there are a whole range of possibilities of how these things will drive the concept of home moving forward. So I'm just curious to know what the people here think. So lots of different angles there. Does anyone want to pick that up? Eve, yeah? Do you want to say who you are? Introduce uh, yourself. Sure. Yep. Hello, um, I'm Eve Honeywell, Evelyn Honeywell, and um, I authored the post-industrial home chapter in the book. And uh, uh, several of the things you mentioned uh, sort of cut through uh, what I write about there, uh, especially in terms of the pu private public sort of merging in, in terms of uh, internet or digital cultures. Um, to answer your question, I would say that absolutely the notion of home will continue to exist in terms of the digital space, but perhaps it will be in terms of our profiles and the way in which uh, we go to a home page or we visit what is our sort of home space online itself. Uh, in terms of the more physical aspects of that, I'm sure that there are other reflections people could give, but certainly in terms of the digital side of it, I think that, um, uh, yeah, we've got a, a separate sort of idea of home that we take with us through our phones, uh, through, through to work, uh, in and out of work and out of the house, out of the dwelling, all over the world, we sort of have that representation of ourself, our identity as home, uh, with us online. So, thanks. Does anyone else want to pick up on that question? About the persistence? Just a very quick thing. Um, and it's simply this. The home has already survived enormous world historical changes. The thing that we, we live in, that we think of, is the home. It doesn't look anything like the home of 150 years ago or 300 years ago. It doesn't look like the home that you might get in uh, you know, the Amazon. So, um, so humans, it's not that it's a universal you know, imperative, but humans will also always find a way of making themselves at home in the spaces that they inhabit. I'll just add one more thing. I mean, the, I think... I think there is a sort of argument for the enduring concept of home, both through the kind of digital media, you know, work. We see lots of people, you know, when people are sitting on their things, interacting with people, they may actually be constructing home. That might be where home sits a lot of time, you know, in the, the sort of media. I mean, there's a lot of people who I talk to um, who still use Facebook because in other parts of the world, Facebook is the space where all of their networks come together um, in a way that they actually physically cannot you know, cannot do so. So th that's sort of important. But I think also if we think about, um, and I suspect uh, with the kind of climate change work and migration that will happen, we will probably be revisiting concepts of diaspora and home because those kind of imagined homelands, the, you know, the making of things, we're already seeing it. Um, I think in Fiji, there's been uh, the kind of Bonoban community that was sort of misplaced and has been trying to kind of reconfigure home in Fiji, which is actually not actually <laughs> their home. They're, you know, they're more from Kiribati, et cetera. So um, I think there's quite a bit of um, work that says it will be enduring, but the specificity and particularities will be quite interesting. And I think this book does a lot of work to kind of uh, revitalize some of those uh, discussions with new literature and new case studies and also a kind of uh, an effort to not segment the migration you know kind of work from the um, mobility work etc that actually bringing those together um, creates really quite useful conversations so I'll leave it there
other questions? Um, I had a question which came sort of really through um, Justine's talk and really thinking about the, um, the afterlife of your chapter in a way that it became such a sort of um, urgent issue and has been sort of suppressed again but how it's going to come up again. And I guess something I was really fascinated by when Heather sort of pulled out that, uh, the role of the state in uh, sort of regulating or forming home or allowing for people to feel at home. And I don't, if anybody gets a chance to read Yasmin's chapter, Yasmin Mushabash's chapter, because I think it a little bit picks up on the question just then about, you know, will homes still exist? Uh, the, the practices of uh, Indigenous Australians in Central Australia it didn't look like home to the regulation of the Northern Territory government, so they forced people into these kinds of homes. So I think that sort of... Um, being able to step back and not try and impose notions of home is really important. But I was, I was interested in the state government's sort of reaction to the um, Martin Place and the camp was to actually impose the state over the local council in the end. I think that's sort of what happened, how they got people out. They rezoned that area legislatively. Uh, the, the city of Sydney uh, wasn't able to forcibly remove people uh, based on existing laws and also the uh, homelessness policies that they themselves have uh, subscribed to and that they promote, um, but that they were not completely... Uh, bystanders either, that they had actually attempted to remove, uh, move the campers on through other means in the lead up to the New South Wales government passing new laws that would allow them to forcibly, the police would allow police to forcibly remove people from Martin Place. Um, and the way that they do that is exactly how uh, Melbourne, um, the city of Melbourne is moving people um, away from sites where they're camping and that is by taking their belongings. So taking gas, containers, things, uh, objects from which people make themselves at home, exactly as Greg was explaining. Uh, so it's the objects of home that are removed and that are the primary means through which people are removed from public spaces. Uh, the laws that were passed were not actually in the end used. So that law still exists and it's actually something that I'd like to pay a bit more attention to because I think it has other implications for gatherings in public spaces by other groups that may not necessarily be people who are experiencing homelessness. We don't know how those laws will be enacted uh, or enforced, but in the end the threat of being able to be forcibly removed was enough. So I think that it ends up... Um, yeah, the law was about being able to move people if there is a deemed safety issue. Thanks. Yep. Well, the Thanks. interesting question is, why did they pick Martin Place? All the safety concerns, yeah. all the, the, the need for safety, for living and so on, they could have picked a place on the back of a walk. And then it wouldn't have captured the level of attention that it captured. Yeah. Oh, so I what was the real I'm just going to repeat the question yeah. um, just for the podcast. So when you said, why did they pick Martin Place, you mean the protest camp? 
why did they pick that in place? Look, I think that's an interesting question. There's a history there which I tried to uh, to draw to, you know, to your attention in terms of the, uh, the previous resource that had been set up by Lance Priestley during Occupy Sydney. So he was the one who was kind of pretty instrumental in setting up um, the provision of services at Martin Place. And that became a... Uh, a kind of a point where people could gather to get access to food in a very highly visible and public place. So there was already kind of a history there. It was already, it was already, you know, that people already knew about the resource, and then it was kind of reincarnated in a new form. Uh, but I think that is a really interesting question about what is the, uh, what, what are the other kinds of uh, reasons for, for for it being Martin Place versus somewhere else. Uh, because there was already an existing site at Belmore Park, for example, an encampment at Belmore Park. So I think part of it is that it drew a lot, a lot of public attention. Yeah, exactly, to, to Parliament House, but also to the fact that it is, that's where Channel 7 um, has their headquarters. Um, you know, as, as you recall from the image that I showed, they were right there on the scene during the Martin Place siege. It's also a place where there are a lot of um, other public activities, so uh, it was going to get in the way, and that meant that it was going to be uh, an issue that, that drew it, you know, attention to homelessness. And I think that that... So there was a degree of politicisation of homelessness involved in the process, even though it was very organic uh, and, and kind of evolved in a self-organised fashion without there being a particular leader. There was clearly a... Uh, an element of politicisation through the process of occupying and, and camping uh, Martin Place. Any other questions? Yes, Stephen. Thanks. Yeah, just staying with that example of Martin Place, um, the Occupy movement and the camp of homeless people seem very different in the type of participants. Uh, can you say a little bit more about the synergy between the two events? Because, uh, I mean, was, was there, were there strong links between the two apart from through the personality of the uh, person you've mentioned or was there a political synergy? Uh, I mean, what's the connection? Uh, I'd like to be able to hand over to Anne to talk about this because she was actually at the Occupy Sydney um, events at Martin Place, so she experienced it firsthand. Uh, but I think what, what was really clear was that there were people who were at the, the Sydney Occupy event who, um, who were either at risk of homelessness or already or sleeping on the street and who were also involved with the event. I mean... Being someone who's experiencing homelessness doesn't mean that you're not um, able to participate in other aspects of society, including politics. So there was a crossover in terms of the demographics. It was a small one. Uh, but, um, and I think that the, the sort of safety in numbers was also, is also an issue. The fact that there were people who were sleeping in groups is, means that it's a safer place to sleep, so it attracted people to that site, which is another reason why I think Martin Place, the encampment at Martin Place started to grow, uh, because safety is the primary issue when you're sleeping on the street. I want to ask you a question. Surely isn't it 
part of the issue is um, it's not about making yourself at home in the sense of making yourself comfortable in a very physical spot. It's about making yourself at home in the nation or in the polity, whatever you want to call it. So, so there are plenty of examples of people who move into public space and, and occupy the, the, that, that space, um, not just as a political thing, but as a, as a way of saying, well, I belong here too. And I have a right to say this or do this. And it, you, you either have to act in a particular way to exclude me or you have to include me. So, it's, so it's, again, it's this kind of idea that the, the, the scales at which um, home is being... Um, um, is operating in that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that was a question. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Any other questions the panel has <laughs> to follow up on from that? We do have. Some of the other authors, to put them on the spot, <laughs> they were here tonight. So, I can I, ask Norbert a question. Go for it. It's because I think it's an interesting point about um, the importance of the plurality of the life worlds. So, how do you move between them? So, it's not just the, it's not just the consequence of having a plurality that makes the world complicated. People also acquire the capacity to move between them. And so being at home is not just about being there and being there. It's actually about going from here to there and feeling that one can do that. Mm. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a good question. But I think, as, as most of you have actually pointed out, that it's about the practices. And I think this one's about practice as well. Um, in the book, or in my chapter, I basically start with a couple of references to earlier generations of theorists that talk about that sort of thing. In particular, Schutz, talking about being a stranger and being a homecomer. So there is a practice of, so almost like in sequence, you go away and then you come back and you notice things are not the same, or you go away and you notice things are not the way I know them. So I think in that practice, you experience uh, the moving backwards and forwards, really, and that's how we learn it, I think. I think we learn by missing home, by being at home, by loving objects at home, and all those things. Um, that's when we learn what it means and how we move between them. And I think you can't reconcile it, but you can learn to be in both, to be at home in both, I think. That's the, the multiplicity of it, I think. Yeah, look, sorry, I'm feeling extremely nervous. I'm not in academia at the moment, so I'm not used to these kinds of forums. Um, just talking about feeling out of place. Um, my chapter focused on the sensory experience of home and how we inhabit places through our bodies. Um, so I guess I'd just like to jump back a few steps and actually talk about your question that you asked um, about digital worlds and... Um, will there be a continuation of a sense of home as the world changes around us? I mean, whether we use digital worlds or not, we still have a body and we still have to eat and 
you know, go through all of the things that are part of being alive. And I'm, I was also really interested in, I guess, some of the discussions that happened here tonight about the artwork that was chosen and um, what's happening in the Caribbean at the moment and this idea of the climate changing around us as well. Um, if to us, our sensory experience of home involves a certain type of light or a certain expectation of what the weather's going to be and that weather is shifting and changing. Um, our sense of home and our sense of the place in which we live has to change with it somehow. Um, it's going to be a struggle. And the people that I was writing about in my case study have experienced that struggle through migrating from one place to another, but I think now we're in a situation in which we all have to make that adjustment with that even if we stay in place because the place itself is changing. Um, so that's going to be an interesting one for the future. Yeah. You know, there was a, an episode of Grand Designs from ABC where they showed about some of the families choosing to live in totally remote islands, completely you know, away from everything else and trying to live in a very uh, self-contained manner. They have their own power supply, their own water recycling and so on. And again, it goes back to the way technology is going. If you've got solar panels, if you've got batteries, if you've got water recycling, everything is free. And you're not really dependent on the public grid for anything. So effectively, the concept of what we now see as commons and what we now see as localities and suburbs where people live together as a community may become obsolete in a physical sense. Probably it'll still be in a virtual sense, people may homes may still be interacting with each other in a virtual sense. But in a physical sense, people don't have to, homes don't have to be in close proximity. You can build a home wherever you choose to. Now, what implication does that have in terms of the way homes are being designed, the way cities are being planned, settlements are being planned now? That's an interesting question. Do you want to respond to that? For further discussion. <laughs> so um, I guess the, the question around um, loss seemed to come up and Greg um, touched on that in a way that this um, seemed to be an experience which actually triggered reflection on home in lots and lots of the chapters. And I, I think um, tonight you've heard a little bit about the sort of um, way in which not just the content of the book, but also the process that we we went through, that we did um, sort of have to workshop the papers with each other. And um, there are some tensions, I think, in the papers which Greg's pointed out, where there's a bit of an argument or a um, kind of an idea developing. And I guess we were always interested in... Uh, we're not talking about the home as... Um, I know there are some books around about sort of trying to normalise home and trying to sort of standardise home and I think in all of the chapters there's a sort of really interesting kind of critique of that idea and what a unitary kind of home is. So I just think, um, thank you for all the questions because they've brought out some of those tensions and some of those um, differences and um, particularly that sort of uh, process that we go through when we're confronted with um, kinds of definitions of home which are not comfortable and I think the, um, Justine's pointing out the Gladys Berejiklian um, response really reminds me of you know the John Howard's response about relaxed and comfortable and this sort of um, idea that there is this sort of settled um, 
notion of home is quite dangerous and we should really be um, quite um, quick to think about it and think about what it does in our public discourse. So that's really where I'm going to end because um, I think we uh, had some great questions and it's probably time that we go and have a drink to celebrate the book. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.